You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Hey, good morning, Forefront. Um, I'm going to from a very awkward place in my apartment, but uh, very happy to be here with all of you safely. I hope you're all doing all right. Um, I'm the executive director here at Forefront New York City. All pronouns are okay with me. Um, and we are in the middle of our Advent, in the middle of Advent, which is a season essentially of preparation for the birth of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, what have you. Um, and as you can probably tell, we're also, uh, our particular sermon series is called Make a Joyful Noise, in which we're sort of joyfully and noisily uh, and messily celebrating um, our community, the good news, which, who Jesus is, our scriptures, and what have you. So we are kicking off within the series our announcement of our sort of new but kind of old but somewhat new core values as a church um so i'm going to talk about the first one and then jonathan will cover the next two and um the first one is going to be about kind of the community and our life of our church and i'll kind of walk you through our process so as jonathan mentioned last week a few months ago we took a staff retreat in pennsylvania and we kind of had this big white poster paper and we wrote down all the things that we kind of felt were important to our church that defined our church and we had all these bullet points and then we took those bullet points and then tried to condense them into categories and so we had kind of three categories in which which ended up being our three core values and if you can see it will have a slide but there's a a category called community slash life and underneath we have these bullet points. I mean, it's my handwriting, so it's very messy. Um, I couldn't read some of the words, but you see the bullet points that said like chosen family, mutual aid, unity, not uniformity, etc. And I want to explain a little bit about the, our thinking behind those bullet points, and I'll talk a bit about what we ended up naming this value. So under like unity and not uniformity, which is kind of a big one of our kind of taglines, so to speak, we were thinking about how we have people in our church who, sorry, that's my cat. Um, people in our church who do not um, believe in God, maybe kind of consider this themselves Christian, not even sometimes, all the way ranging from people who definitely consider themselves Christian, pray daily, read the Bible daily. And what I think I love about our church is you'll find both groups of people um, among our committed volunteers, among our leadership. Um, an anecdote I always like to tell is in my small group, well, we, at one point we kind of rotated leading prayer and stuff like that. And then someone had to lead prayer who is very uncomfortable with prayer, is not, uh, does not believe in intercessory or interventionist God. And so she kind of just read out loud a written prayer. And then we also had someone in our group who grew up in a Korean church and so made us all pray out loud for five minutes all at once straight, um, which is very stressful, um, but also kind of fun. And and it kind of like you got into it after a little bit. I have, haven't done that since childhood. Um, so you kind of, and both of these people are, you know, leading in our group, helping facilitate and what have you. And that's because we, we find ways we can be unified without being uniform on all areas of doctrine and what have you. And so under the bullet point chosen family, for instance, um, and I got Max permission to share this. She's also in my small group. And during the pandemic, she was living at home with her family because, you know, life. Um, she's back in Brooklyn now. But um, during that time, she uh, texted our group and said, you know, it's it's coming up to my one-year anniversary of when I came out to 
um, you know, myself essentially, and then other people, what have you. And so we said, you know, Max's parents aren't the most supportive, so that we'll celebrate with you and for you because there's no one physically present with you now to celebrate with you. And so we went around and we all said something we're proud of her about, um, something in which we were inspired um, by her because we wanted to be able to stand in essentially and do what, um, you know, ideally sometimes our families would do for us. Um, and under the bullet point mutual aid, so I'm just like hitting everyone with all these snapshots. I'll, I'll bring it together at some point. Um, I think the I think this is probably the most obvious bullet point. If you've been with us, especially during the summer, you'll notice you know all our sort of mutual aid efforts, which are still going on and still running. Um, and I think I've been particularly impressed by how many of you, when we put out the call to help, um, is stood up and said, you know, I have a little bit extra time. I'm going to go pick up groceries for someone. Or I have a little bit extra money. I'm going to cover groceries for someone. Uh, people, some, people, some of you lent cars and drove people places, people you've never met before. You got in the same car with them. You, like, delivered groceries to basically complete strangers um, just simply because we're part of the same church, you're a good human being, we're in crisis, what have you. And so we thought a little bit about what do we call this kind of commitment that is kind of like family, something's better than family, but also it's not family because we're all like very much biologically unrelated to each other in many ways um, and quite different. And I think Jonathan, they came up with the word uh, kinship. And we're like, oh, that's great. It just needs like an adjective. So I was like, um, how about weird kinship or strange kinship? And everyone was silent. And I don't know why. And then someone finally pulled out the source and was like, how about uncommon kinship? And we was like, yes, that's it. And we all spontaneously jumped in the air and we took this picture, um, which is awesome. And, um, you know, as a kind of aside, by the way, this is a, a fundraising sermon series. So I'm going to be asking for money and what have you throughout the sermon. And one of the line items in our budget uh, is to be able to have staff retreat so we can think about the long-term future of our church, our core values, make sure those values are infused into our ministries. And also, if we hope to, if we raise enough money, we hope to be able to have, uh, bring back church-wide retreats again when it's safe and the vaccine is out. Um, so that's something where I think we're like hoping to be able to do with some of the money we raise. But in any case, to return to this value um, of uncommon kinship, what makes kinship uncommon? Uh, there are many angles and facets to this, um, but I think the primary one I want to highlight is um, that co un common kinship or common community is one in which, naturally, the people in the center are the people who are the most taken care of because they have the most friendships, the most relationships, they're popular, whatever, they have resources, they're in, they're in the group. I think uncommon kinship are forms of kinship or community in which those who are not in the center are taken care of as well. And I think that's what we aspire to do at Forefront. We don't always achieve that. And I want to talk a little bit about why we care about those through, uh, you know, yes, the Bible. Uh, so in John 13, um, this is, I'm going to kind of jump straight there. This, this is kind of one of the verses um, this chapter is in which Jesus is at the Last Supper. He just washed his disciples' feet. He knows he's going to get betrayed in a little bit and, you know, get ambushed by the police and sentenced to death as a criminal. 
And so he's trying to impart to his disciples some final words of wisdom that they can really hang on to when he's gone for, you know, surprise three days. Um, and so one of the things he says to them is, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Um, just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I want to pay attention to that last sentence in particular. Um, because I think it's super interesting that from Jesus' perspective, what makes his disciples distinctive or perhaps uncommon uh, from other people's disciples, other leaders' disciples, is not the fact that they have certain beliefs, that they believe in Jesus, something like that, but that they have love for one another. Not necessarily love for God, or have you, although all those things are definitely important, but he, this is going back to what makes his disciples uncommon. And so let's talk about the disciples. And I'm not going to talk about the disciples in the center, sort of, you know, Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, and Luke, what have you. I'm going to talk about the, the shadow disciples, um, you know, the disciples who were afraid of being publicly, like, associated with Jesus, who literally hung out at night because they didn't want people to see that they were talking to Jesus. And I'm thinking of two people in particular, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Um, so we learn about Nicodemus immediately in the second chapter of John, and that the gospel I'm spending most time with. Here's a verse. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So I can't get into this whole story, but you can tell really important fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. And what does that mean? Where do people go if, they want, if, they, if they're going to someplace at night? Um, Nicodemus does not want to be seen. Maybe he uses the cover of night to kind of ask his questions, to secretly confess his faith and what have you. The other man I mentioned was Joseph of Arimathea. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but whatever. Um, I'll get into his story a little bit more, but we know three things from the various Gospels. We know that he's a rich man from the Gospel of Matthew. We know that he is a respected member of the Council, Gospel of Luke. And we know later on, as you'll see, he was someone who was a secret follower of Jesus because he feared his community's opinion. Uh, so the question is, what are Joseph and Nicodemus afraid of? And I think some of the things you can kind of guess um, they have a lot of power, they don't lose that power. Um, I, but I don't think we cut sort of grasp in a Christian majority nation how socially dangerous it was to associate with Jesus back then. And I think the example I like to think of the most um, that really brings us home is in John chapter 9. So what happens is Jesus heals this um, man who was born blind. He restores his eyesight through some mud-saliva combo. You know, I'm trying to imagine, like, these days, that combination will get sold in Etsy or something like that. Um, but the Pharisees and the religious leaders and people are shocked. Like, how did this man, isn't he born blind, what have you? And the um, religious authorities in particular um, are in disbelief because they say Jesus is a sinner. How can then Jesus work a miracle? So they bring this man before his parents or something like that. And they ask his parents, hey, isn't this your son? Was he born blind? And if so, how is he now seen? And his parents, the scripture tells us, are afraid. They're afraid because anyone who testifies that Jesus is the Messiah 
um, is at risk of getting kicked out of their synagogues, of their communities, of their jobs, workplaces, what have you. And so this is what the parents say. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Um, and I, <laughs> I kind of love this verse because it's so clear this dude's parents are like scared out of their minds. They're just throwing their son under the bus and saying like, so glad you're no longer blind, but like you're on your own. We're not like risking our lives for you. We're not getting thrown out of communities. Like you talk to them. We're not talking to them. You handle it. So you can see how associating with Jesus was so scary that even parents were not willing to take risk on behalf of their children. So do we see how we can have a little bit more empathy for where Nicodemus and Joseph are coming from? Yes, of course, they're privileged or have you. Um, we can understand why they have this secret relationship with Jesus and why they meet, you know, in disguise, essentially. They, they're like his teachings. They're breaking bread. They're drinking wine with all the other social outcasts, so to speak. Uh, but they don't want to give up anything too much, really. And so they're in this paradoxical situation where they're in the center of Jewish society, but on the margins of Jesus is a circle. So this continues for a while. They meet at night or what have you. And then... Jesus, um, surprise, is killed and executed. <laughs> and so the question is, um, what's going on with his disciples? I know this is not super thematic relevant. This is more like relevant at Lent, but I just the story is so interesting. I, I had to talk about it during Advent. Um, the uh, so the disciples. So I'm going to apply something called the Ignatian spiritual exercises, which are from Saint Ignatius, in which you kind of take a passage of scripture. And you sort of set the scene in your head. I think actors must do this a little bit. You kind of create the backstories of characters. You kind of imagine what did it smell like, what was going on through their minds. The scripture only gives us sometimes like a few lines. Um, so I'm going to do that. And this is not, uh, you know, an acting technique. This is like a centuries-old spiritual exercise. But you know, actors also use. Um, Mackenzie's like laughing at me, and uh, I'm glad I'm glad to have some audience validation. The <laughs> so I'm gonna imagine what it's like for the disciples while Jesus is hanging on the cross uh, and you know dead. So you know I'm thinking they're probably all huddled in one house here because they're scared. You know if they took Jesus down, maybe they're next. They're maybe feeling a little bit of obviously fear. I would also venture to say they're feeling a little bit guilt, uh, a little bit of guilt. I mean not just Nicodemus and Joseph. But I think, like everyone, there most of them abandoned him as soon as the police came around to ambush him. So my foot's falling asleep. Gotta readjust my leg. Um, and and Simon Peter, who supposedly was like Jesus' ride or die, like denied being a disciple of Jesus um, in front of a Roman soldier three times. So I think I was feeling really guilty. And they're thinking, me, you know, we have failed the the person we love. We have failed our master, our teacher, our rabbi. And maybe, you know, they're also grieving together. Um, they're holding hands, they're praying together, they're singing together, they're breaking bread and eating together. Obviously the loss of Jesus, but I also think the loss of Judas, who was one of them who took his life. Um, I think that there was a lot, there's probably a lot of grieving going on then. And I kind of imagine Nicodemus and Joseph are there with them. They're, you know, holding hands with people they would maybe otherwise never associate with, like, illiterate fisherman, um, a like skeezy tax collector, um, women, wow, 
um, essentially like social outcasts who like, you know, misfits because of Jesus. Um, and, you know, I you know, would venture to call it an uncommon kinship, drum roll. Um, so at some point, I think someone asked in this room, what's going to happen to Jesus' body? Like, who's going to bury him? And in my head, I'm imagining Nicodemus and Joseph look at each other, make eye contact across the room. They're like, it's time. So I think they stand up and they make a speech and they say, you know what? We have the most power and resources on everyone in church. We will take that risk. We'll come out. We'll claim his body because we owe it to you all. We've been in secret hiding all this time, but um, this is time in which we can actually use our power for something. So let's read this passage. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices and linen clothes, according to the burial customs of the Jews. John 19. I find this passage like, incredibly moving and beautiful. These are two men who have been living a double life for years, and finally, after the death of Jesus, they come out and reveal themselves to be his disciples. And, you know, can you imagine the gossip? They, they're here they are taking care of Jesus' body, wrapping it, embalming it, burying it. And I'm sure they were probably filled with like guilt and regret that they did this so late, that they felt like that old Jesus one. But I also think that they were moved by their fellow disciples and they felt maybe they owed it to them and not just owe it to Jesus. And I think something I think about, I think about is, I wonder if Joseph and Nicodemus encountered a community that made it worth it for them to give up their comfort and to take a risk. Um, worth it because they knew that if they got kicked out of their communities, which they probably would have after this kind of public coming out, that there would be a community that would take them in. And that I think is an uncommon kinship, a kind of community that you would take a risk for, a community that you would give up something comfortable for. Um, Oh, sorry. Yes. That's a Jesus figurine that I got from Cebu in the Philippines with John Rosello. I can tell the backstory on the comments some other time. No, no, so the question is, this is highly too distracted in this sermon. Uh, so the question is, what kind of community do we aspire to have in this church? And I think this is a good question to ask because if I'm asking you to give, you know, you got to know kind of what you're giving to. What is the direction, you, you know, this church is moving towards? Do you agree with that direction or what have you? And I think it's fundamentally, I think, our aspiration is to be a community that takes care of people who are not in the center. And so what does that look like? And I think we've done that in fits and starts, bits and pieces there, although there's so much more we can do. During this pandemic in particular, we've had a couple people reach out um, to staff who are not part of any group any team, any small group who don't really know a ton of people in this church, really just know like Jonathan. And they reached out and said, hey, we need help. We're going through some stuff. Um, and I was just kind of like blown away to see our care team, which kind of formed during this pandemic, get on the phone with these congregants, talk to them, a spreadsheet would appear miraculously, a meal train would get formed miraculously, all for people whom they had never met before. I think also of um, a congregant who we had um, pass away this um, a few months ago. 
and he's a very dear uh, person to all of us. And his family actually used to attend our church, but now actually attends a different church. And But I think all I was really proud of was that our response was to them was pretty much the same way we respond to any family who is still a part of our church. Um, we brought it together a meal train for them, so people chipping in all the way from like London. Um, we put together an emergency memorial service because um, we said, you know, you are still kin to us. And I think that's a pretty uncommon thing for churches to do, um, which, uh, you know, for better or for worse. And I think another way in which I like to think about uncommon kinship is is about, I think, as people mentioned, as we kind of alluded to in the meet and greet question, getting to know people who we otherwise would never have met if they weren't for a church. I noticed a lot of people in the comments mentioned Phil as their sort of like uncommon friendship. And uh, I'm actually going to give you my shout out in the sermon. I first met Phil um, through prayer because, you know, you go up during communion in the roulette and they would turn to the side. And I was like, who's this like old white man who's like always there <laughs> praying for people? To be frank, that was my reaction. Um, but then I got to know Phil a little bit better, and I was like, oh, wow, this has a lot of kind of wisdom, a lot of gentleness. And it turns out we have, like, really, really similar reasons for why we love Forefront. I'm going to read out something from him. Forefront was a revelation and permission to feel what I felt for a long, long time. I was already remo- moving in a more progressive direction, but I felt pretty alone. It made me realize that it was okay to believe and think the way I do. The freedom to think for yourself, most churches don't talk about that. I was able to get involved and feel valued and appreciated to become a spiritual home, which I never had before. And that is pretty much exactly, I think, the biggest thing that Forefront has given me. I've talked in the past about like the being able to kind of integrate my sexuality and my faith and my queerness. Uh, but actually, the thing that I'm most grateful for is the ability to feel like I can use my brain in church. I felt like I was restored a part of my body, a part of myself. Um, and at, for the first time, I think at Forefront, I felt like my full, whole self was able to engage in my faith. That there was no like taboo question or red line, secret red line I couldn't cross. And so I super resonate with what you wrote, Phil. We're actually going to post a bit of his story on social media. But the, what's interesting is that Phil and I, although we have really similar reasons for liking Forefront, have also super different life stories. So here I'm going to read aloud from Phil again. Um, I was a really rebellious teenager anyone can guess. Um, But I ran into the Jesus movement back in 1972. And that's how I ended up in a (coughs) charismatic Bible college in Florida. And I left the church and I stumbled into Wiccanism in Philly. You can actually, Phil says you can maybe find footage of him talking about being a practicing Wiccan um, on local Philly cable news. And then I managed a restaurant that did really well for uh, a summer, but that was in 2001. After 9-11 happened, I got depressed. I drank way too much. And out of desperation, I wandered into a church. I realized I needed a religion that was about love and not just about me. When I couldn't quit drinking, the pastor sent me to Brooklyn for teen challenge rehab. It worked, but it was very white ring and very legalistic. After that, I went to Times Square Church. I worked in restaurants as a chef manager. Feels a chef, by the way. Um, and then in the beginning of 2013, I couldn't work anymore because my back went out. I ended up in a shelter, homeless, and then found out I was eligible for veteran affairs care and housing, which was miraculous because I was trying to figure out how to get neck surgery on my spine while living in a shelter. This apartment through the VA's office was also two blocks from VA hospital, and it's located in Gramercy, Manhattan. One Sunday, I was looking for a church, and I stumbled to Gramercy Theater, 
which is where I found Forefront Manhattan Church, which is actually our parent church. And through that, after that closed, I ended up in Forefront Brooklyn. Um, and I think, as you can tell, you know, Phil, you know, and I have quite different life stories, but one thing I super appreciate is despite all of this stuff, I'm able to, one, learn from his story and his life in ways that maybe I wouldn't have if I had just written him off as kind of like an old white dude. Um, but also we find so many ways to like connect. Um, we have similar kind of questions about theology and progressive Christianity. We have similar contemplative practices. We talk about speaking in tongues. Um, and I'm so glad I am in church where I can learn from someone like Phil. I'm tell a different story. Um, this one's Natasha Smith, who uh, leads our 35 and up group. And by the way, uh, Phil is in the care team. He's in the biblical literacy group. He's in the forefront Manhattan group. He has there's so much in our church. Natasha leads our 35 and up group. Um, she's married to Mary, who's also one of our leaders in our church. And um, for a good period of time, Natasha, Mary, and I were all part of the same uh, small group meeting at the Johnston House, for those of you who are Hannah and Sam um, Johnston. And we um, would meet, and I was at the point in time where I was really fresh from having coming out, come out to my parents. I definitely, like, been trying to figure out questions, and I was like, how do I deal with rejection and set boundaries? And it was so helpful to have Natasha in that group in particular, who was basically a full life stage ahead of me and has so much more wisdom to share and just hear her stories, but her navigating things with her mom and her dad and how her, her siblings and how she set boundaries and how she decided to fact, take things this way and that. Um, and I think, you know, side note, part of what we're raising money for is to be able to give a bigger budget to small groups so that we can really encourage and empower them to really sort of um, have these kinds of like life-changing conversations and I said you know I bring up Tasha in part because I think as queer people sometimes the scariest people to meet at church are people who remind us of our families because you know it's like oh it brings up this trauma they remind me of my aunt my uncle grandparents what have you parents and so I want to read out this comment from, from Tasha who posted, posted this in the Facebook group um, I have been so skeptical of befriending people who remind me of my extended family. I've been ri ridiculed by so many and shunned by others. The first time I heard Angela sing a song from my childhood, I burst into tears. I was wary that she would judge me too. She did not, and I'm always comforted when I talk to her. She also feels the hope that one day I might have a more meaningful relationship with other members of my family. I think this too is an uncommon Kinship. Another example, when our country was um, grappling and still is grappling with the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and police violence against particularly black uh, folks in our country, um, our church had over the summer a series of very intense conversations, voluntary, I think we were about 50 people regularly engaged every week uh, for about six weeks. And I, you know, saw and observed white people who looked quite uncomfortable but who committed to like listening to the conversation, committed to giving up airtime so they could hear other perspectives. And I watch our black congregants, other people of color, um, speak up and talk about ways in which they felt unwelcomed for in this church, not greeted at the front doors, talked down to while volunteering. And I watch them take a risk and say, I'm saying this, I'm being a bit vulnerable and sharing how I've been hurt because I believe in the church, I'm taking a risk to continue to commit to this church because I believe we can do better. I believe we are all one church as a family. 
And, you know, I, I was struck the, by this. And I, as staff, I think we, uh, speaking for myself, I learned a lot. You know, we were able to listen and give feedback in ways in which, you know, we were maybe rushing too much. I, I was being too impatient, quick to action. It was a great learning experience for me. And I think that is a kind of uncommon kinship where we can share hard truths with each other. We can listen. We can be uncomfortable. Um, and I think part of what we want to raise money for in this series is to actually hire and pay for an anti-racism facilitator to lead trainings for our board, our staff, our deacons, so that to get trained so we can train other people in our church. And I, I, I think what kind of wraps all of this up for me is that I think the reason why we strive to take care of each other and learn from each other, including people who are not in the center, is that I think most of us know what it's like to not be in the center, whether it's because of our identity or because we ask like too many questions in Sunday school or what have you. And I, I think as Christians, obviously we have to acknowledge we hold an uh, incredible amount of privilege. Um, but as progressive Christians, we are sort of like social outcasts within the larger church community. And I think that is partly why I think all of us are kind of invested in disrupting the center, so to speak. Um, and I, in particular, I, I want to shout our decolonizing group, which is our group I feel like does this as better than many groups I know, um, led by Ali and Juan. And even last Sunday, they had a whole conversation about the complicity of the church and white supremacy and how progress requires like dismantling the church as an institution as we know it in order to build again. And I was listening to the conversation and I just struck by the fact that we were having this conversation in church. Um, I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of cool that we are able to organize spaces for self-critique essentially, um, as well as like larger institutional critique. And I, Regina uh, Miranda, who co-leads at Crown Heights North Small Group with her husband, Tom Barrera, mentioned this comment that I got her permission to share because I think it really encapsulates the mindset I hope we all have as a church. Despite allowing to feel included, I start to feel uncomfortable when I become too much a part of the inside because it means that I might lose touch with people who are on the margins. And... Um, I actually really, really love this because I think it's a super uncommon way of thinking about community and kinship. Instead of, you know, just thinking about, you know, do I belong? Am I part of this? Am I in the middle? I think it's a mindset that asks who does not belong? Who does not see that they fit? And how can I connect to them? How can I make sure that they are in, I am in community with them? And I, I think if we all embody that mindset, that kind of attitude, Something miraculous happens. The center disappears. Because there is no center, no in or out group anymore, no exclusive inner circle. And I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in conclusion, as I mentioned, this is a giving message. Um, if you're able, this is why I'm asking you to give. Because we are a church that aspires towards an uncommon kinship, where we take care and look out for each other, regardless if you're in the center or the periphery, where we're invested in trying to always disrupt the center, where even when we fail, because definitely I would say if you feel like, oh, I don't feel, I don't feel this love, joy, inclusion thing that you're feeling here, I still feel like on the margins, like, yes, that our church is not perfect. We fail, we make mistakes, but at the same time, I think why I still love our churches that we're willing to listen and learn from our mistakes. Um, so look, if you're are hurting financially for whatever reason, you've lost income, costs have really risen for you, let us help you. 
this giving message is, is the reverse for you. But if your income has stayed kind of stable, maybe you've actually saved a little bit more money this season, I'm asking you to give, um, to give in a way that takes risk, to give in a way that gives up a little bit of your comfort. Um, and because I think we are building something kind of special and uncommon here. I want to acknowledge that I'm asking you to give to organized religion. And I know that's not super popular these days. I didn't think actually I'd ever be a point where I'm giving a fundraising message for a church, but here I am in my career. Um, but, and I, I get all the critiques of organized religion, but I just want to ask a few questions. Do y'all think that people just have hours of intense conversation on race without hours of pre-planning and facilitation beforehand? Do you think people um, that, or, that meal trains just spring up for someone who people have never met before without spreadsheets, without tons of behind the scenes administrative work? Do you think that Angela just kind of gets up <laughs> and just sings a song spontaneously without labor, without preparation? Um, I, I think all these things require organizing, they require organization, they require labor and what have you. And I think the infrastructure of a church is uniquely able to kind of support that and equip that in a way that just individual spontaneous piety or spirituality can never quite amount to that, even though it's really good at other things. And so this is, to my mind, the kind of organized, organized religion, I had my slight New York accent come on, organized religion um, that I can get behind and religion that organizes people for good. So would you give to us that? Would you pray with me for that? And would you allow me to thank you for the honor of being part of a church that does this? Close us in prayer. God, I thank you for um, this uncommon kinship which you modeled for us with your disciples and with, with the ways in which you love them, the ways in which you love people who would hurt you, who would fail you, who would betray you. And I thank you that um, in our church, even though we make mistakes, even though we have excluded people, we have made people feel unwelcome, we're always striving to do better, to learn, to get back up, to care for people, to push ourselves, um, to connect and care for people who, you know, we might dislike or we might have nothing in common with or we might have never met. I pray that your spirit will cover over all sins, your spirit of love will cover over all hurts and grievances as we strive together um, to form a truly uncommon kinship. In your name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.